Hello and welcome to another episode of Back to Britpop. It's me, Chris. On this episode, I'm delighted to be joined by Jim McCulloch. Jim talks about all his musical projects to date, from BMX Bandits, Soup Dragons, Superstar, Snow Goose, and we also talk about the writing and recording of his first debut album, When I Mean What I Say, which came out fairly recently. It's a lovely chat, and I was very grateful for Jim for giving up his time for me. As per usual, I'll be back at the end of the interview to talk about all the ways that you can support this podcast. But in the meantime, here's Jim. Welcome to the podcast, Jim McCulloch. How are you? I'm very well. Thanks for asking me. Whereabouts in the world are you? I'm in Glasgow. Uh, yeah, just in the West End of Glasgow. And uh, I always ask this question. I probably should stop answer, asking it now because it is becoming tedious. But how has the last 18 months been for you? Uh, pretty wild, just like everybody else. You know, I, I think as musicians, we, we are very conscious of the fact that we've not been able to perform you know and play I mean, we can certainly record and write but the actual performance thing is it's been on the you know it's been like a foreign country you know but I think it's beginning to see it opening up again now so which is great news well you've been able to put an album out as well a solo album your first is that right that's right yeah I mean I had it's funny because the recording of that um, was all kind of all done just before that um that fateful in March, you know, the lockdown, I finished all the work uh, the, just the winter before, so that was all ready to go and it was all in place, but then, you know, trying to get some shows to put around it, it just was, was not an option, you know, but yeah, I was very lucky to have, to have all that work done beforehand. And your um, approach to recording this album, in terms of all the other sort of projects that you've done uh, since you kind of became a full-time musician, yeah. I mean, this was quite a big step for you, I guess, to become front and centre. I mean, was, what was that transition like for you? Was it easy? Well, it was a, gra- a gradual realisation, you know, over decades, I guess, um, that really this is something that I wanted to do and, and I gradually got myself to the position that, you know, if I'm going to call myself an artist, i got to do it the way I want to do it, you know. And so I made the decision, to went back to university, I got a degree and uh, I mean, the music and all the the songs for this album kind of sprung out of that decision. So Mm. everything's kind of joined, you know, and a bit. It's like taking, obviously, I've been going playing guitar and making music since the 80s, but it took me to like uh, 2020 to actually, you know, stand in front of the spotlight and say, well, this is this is actually me. This is Mm. is, I'm not hiding behind anybody else now. This is me playing and doing what I want to do. And your approach to recording is, would you say, is pretty traditional in the fact that you you sit and record with guitar and vocal and then layer thereafter? Yeah, yeah, pretty much. I mean, to a point, it's actually maybe the process of what the way I did it was um, probably too traditional because I recorded the guitar and the vocals uh, at the same time, which if you've, if you've ever spoke to a sound engineer or, or anybody that works in a recording studio, it's it's not a good move because you can't go back and, and you know fix any mistakes because it'll affect everything else that you've done. So I was really I was really aiming to get everything done in the one take, the one performance, and, and it was all or nothing. So you're you're getting a lot of you know fluffs and wee mistakes and things that maybe you know the casual listener wouldn't notice, but I, you know I know it's there. But it, I really did want to capture the performance, and yeah, I think you get that plus you know, all the wee warts and all end of it as well. Yeah, it's a, it's a really raw and uh, 
almost live approach to it yeah. isn't it and the, that recording process isn't the digital age everyone is so conscious that you would want to go back and over do overdubs and you know even yeah. play with the vocal track and stuff it's taken away the, the safety net you know it's like really this is a, a once a one we're going from the start we're going we're going to the finish and this is what we're doing you know i mean i mean maybe take the, the song record it maybe about four times you know and then just pick the best perf overall performance and because you can't you can't really as we were, you know, say you can't edit out bits in here and change the guitar there or overdubs because it's, it's all done at the same time. Yeah, yeah. scary. <laughs> and in terms of uh, lyrics, you've been writing songs for, for many years, but how does this solo material differ? Are you coming from another place in terms of what you're writing about? Yeah, I mean, in the past, I mean, I've obviously been just writing songs for myself or writing songs for fun or writing songs for, for other performers to sing but this was quite specifically a challenge um, that was set by the university you know it's like it's, I was doing a master's degree basically and um, and at the end of that I had to have an album of songs and it was, it was entirely up to me what it was going to be about and all that kind of thing you know but so I had to make like kind of a lot of artistic decisions quite early on in the process about this is what it's going to be and then when I was actually in the process of writing them, I had to kind of document the process. So that was quite a forensic way of doing it and quite unnerving because it's not something you think about when you're actually normally writing, you know, the process, the actual songwriting process in, its, in itself. So, yeah, it was a bit quite intense, um, but it added a certain depth to it, I think, that I, I maybe wasn't expecting. Um, so I'm quite grateful that had that extra layer of pressure and your voice do you think is can be can be heard so are you pleased with the way sorry that your voice is being heard on this record yeah i guess so i mean i'm always i'm always i, I mean like most people i think when they hear themselves singing or talking um it's a bit strange i've, I've never classed myself as a singer um, but i think somebody once said to me it's like well you've got you've lived your life you've got all that experience and it's and it's your words so there's, your character's going to come out and how you you know how you, you sing so yeah I mean it's just it is what it is now I mean I'm, I'm, I'm perfectly resigned to the fact that I'm, I'm not going to be a, a singer like Todd Rundgren or whoever you know I'm just I'm just me and that's that's what you get you know this album's very a bit a lot to do with honesty so it's it is kind of laid, laid myself bare and what you see is what you get when you think about um your sort of formative years then with music how how did you gravitate towards the guitar? And was it an instrument you kind of fell in love with at an early age? I guess so. Um, back maybe, I self-taught myself with, um, I was maybe 13, 14. Um, always loved music. There was always music on in the house. My mum played the piano. Um, uh, I, you know, I played a wee bit of clarinet at school and was always involved in, in the music department or whatever, you know, but then I discovered like the Beatles and you know just like super melodic music like that and then I realized I wanted to, to play the guitar because I was a big Elvis fan and uh, so yeah it was just that that I iconic uh, guitar thing you know like learning to play in the bedroom listening to music press and pause and try to work out what the chords were and then yeah, some, somebody got me a Beatles songbook for a Christmas um, and yeah I just I just went through it and as soon as I heard a new song I would just try and take, pick it apart so 
I had obviously had a good year for music, and then but it's just developing that and nurturing it, you know. So yeah, it was it was just kind of voyage that I'm still on really. It never really ends, does it? It's kind of the <laughs> You can always go back as well, and you re rediscover the old songs, you know, and and you hear them, hear them fresh again. You know, it's always a it's always a revelation. You're you're so connected, uh, Jim, with so many bands and, and artists. Um, I mean, the the most obvious one, or maybe maybe not. Well, for me, uh, and maybe some of the listeners would be the BMX Bandits, which would just sure. say was that wouldn't be your first band, but it was the the band that kind of. I would have been sort of the biggest project, so to speak, uh, in those early yeah. sort of 80s and 90s. Yeah, I think before that, we were, I mean, the, the BMX band that started, we were like 18, 19 mm. years of age. So we were just, we were just out of school. Um, and the only other sort of bands we'd played in were just like school bands, you know, as, as you do. Um, and it was just like the process of us that sort of looking out of, the wee, you know the boundaries of the wee town that we lived in. We lived in a place called Motherwell, which was the next stop on the train line to Bells Hill, which was another three stops from Glasgow. And it was always we were always looking down that track, you know, Glasgow being the place to be because that's where good music was coming from at that time. And we used to go busking, as I said. And so the guys from Motherwell would, would get on the train, and then the guys from Bells Hill would get on the train, and then. Gradually, we'd, we'd just you know start to talk to each other because we recognised you know kindred spirits and yeah, we just made connections, casual connections that lasted a lifetime. You know, so it's kind of yeah, it's I mean, thinking about it like that. It's like the smallest smallest decisions become like lifelong you know effects. It's very strange. What do you think you uh, you learnt in those formative years with the BMX Bandits? Did it shape any of your kind of career uh, aspirations? I think to a point, I think it gave us that, um, you know, instilled that ethos of like anything is possible. You know, you don't, there's, there's, there are no rules. We, I mean, we were doing cover versions of Jack Brell songs. We were doing Swell Maps songs and, you know, everything in between. And we just realised there is nothing off limits, you know, and we were getting reactions, you know, not very extreme reactions, you know, people either loved it or hated it. And I mean, not just the obvious things, maybe a lot of folk couldn't handle Douglas's onstage persona or they couldn't un they couldn't handle what they, they perceived as the, the, the twee aspect of it all. You know, it was confrontational, especially where we, we were brought up um, in Motherwell and Bells Hill. It was, it was very much the absolute it was a red rag to a bull to a lot of people that were, you know, walking the streets. They would you'd have to walk with one eye behind you because you were you were going to get chased, you were going to get beat up. So yeah, it was confrontational, and we realised that we could go on stage and we could we could do that, and you know, and people would react, you know. So that, mm. that was that was definitely a definitely a part of it, and that once again there are no rules, so we we did what we wanted to do. The Soup Dragons was. The next sort of big project that kind of would you say catapulted you into sort of a different sort of uh world of live music and recording yeah i, yeah, I would say so i mean it's i mean it's hard to compartmentalize them because they did kind of both start at the same time um to, to an extent and then this the suit dragons thing became more national i think maybe um 
they get picked up by a London management company called Big Life, run by a guy called Jazz Summers in association with a guy called Tim Parry. And they had they had really, really high, you know, high powered connections. They Jazz Summers used to be one of the managers of WAM. And they, you know, they were they were just looking for for new projects and they, they saw one of the first Soup Dragons videos, I think, on the video, the chart show, and they got in contact after that. And, and it was just this other this other layer that we had never um, experienced before. You know, it's just like a machine behind the band. Um, and it started off at that, you know, the same level as the BMX Bandits, but then it kind of gradually went off in a, a completely different direction, you know, and became a bit more serious. And once there's sort of money in, involved in it, and so we, there was budgets for videos, there was budgets for tours, you know, I mean, they, they weren't big tours, they weren't big videos, but it was much more than we'd ever experienced before, you know, mm. this is, it was all in the, you know, the space of well, a couple of years, you know. So, what, yeah. what was it, do you think, that um, caught the imagination then about that band? I think there's a lot of uh, visual elements involved in that band um, because we had uh, Ross, the, the drummer, uh, hadn't played the drums before, but he was at art school and he had this huge visual influence on the band. And I think um, just like the four individuals in the band, like Sushil and Sean, and everybody had very specific perspectives on, on music and what they would bring to it, you know, because... Ross had never drummed before, um, so she hadn't really particularly played the bass before. And I was a self-taught guitarist, and, and Sean uh, was a self-taught guitarist as well. And you know, it was just it was just that kind of unique combination of circumstances, you know. Um, yeah, and it, it was and Sean was pretty driven, you know. He was really wanting to to make a success of this, and just they all wanted to get out. of Motherwell, Wales Hill and Glasgow and then, you know, and why stop there, you know, Scotland, UK, the world, you know, so, yeah, yeah, and we, we had the wherewithal to do it. Those early kind of rehearsals and songwriting sessions that you were doing, I mean, was there a moment where you thought, crikey, this is different, this is, this could, this is something that could potentially work? Possibly, yeah, I mean, we, at, at the time we were rehearsing quite a lot, you know, we were rehearsing maybe three or four nights a week. And the, the sort of turnover of material was quite breathtaking. You know, Sean was writing a lot of songs, um, and quite on and quite rejigging old songs as well. So there was always this turnover of material. Um, and if we were playing a concert, it was very short and sharp. So we were playing maybe seven or eight tracks at the most. So there was always we were always um, trying to keep it interesting for us. Um, yeah. I guess it was just that all these ideas and trying to get them down. It's it's funny. It just it just it was like a roller coaster. It really was. Well, you went to the states as well. You you, you had some success there, which is a, another yeah. extremely like uh, a tough a tough one, a tough break. Um, yeah. Was that is that is it true what they say in terms of uh, touring America? Was it just a slog, or was it? Did you find it quite good? <laughs> I think but yeah, it was a combination. You know, I mean, it's not. It wasn't. I mean. It, when we, were, we did it a, a few times on our own, and then we did it a couple of times with an excess Australian band, and it was a different level. You know, they were we were on a stadium tour with them, um, which is it was completely different to the way we we had been doing it. And we were we were just trying to 
um, start off you know, breaking in America by playing um, like 200 capacity venues. Um, and even just in New York State, there's a lot of them. So we had, you know, we were playing and playing and playing. But we were we were loving the the iconography and going on the road and the whole that whole um, going to America and breaking America thing was very big in our you know in our minds um, because we the music a lot of the music we loved obviously was American and going to actually visit these cities was was you know definitely fulfilling the dream and ticking a lot of boxes for us you know so that yeah there was still there was still a lot of excitement there about you know just actually being in America and playing in a band and getting paid for it you know that was that was pretty much what all we, all we were looking for you know and were you coping with it all at the time were you just going with the flow were you finding it quite um stressful to just come up with new songs and for you know and also yeah. just to um to keep the the cogs turning and whirling i mean what was it like yes. <clears throat> that's that is a definitely a balancing act it's very difficult you know to, to maintain that and um, because we were in america then the in our uk profile really dipped you know and we were very conscious of that because we were you know we were like, just like music fans we were reading the nme or the melody maker and, and we and we were seeing we were getting a lot of bad press at that time and we're like what's happening you know couldn't really work out why you know and then we were one just worried about what was happening in the uk but then the, the american record company was saying don't look don't worry about it you're here now focus on america you know and so but we, we had to kind of do that and then and that maybe worked um not in our favor at the time you know so so it's, it's just a balancing act it's, it's really hard to to get right i think but you know we just we did what we did we were only Really, we were only 23, 24 years old at this point, and you know we weren't that far away from from where we started. Really, the Soup Dragons kind of naturally, would you say, came to an end on in itself? It, it was was there a moment when you when you guys sort of thought, okay, this is something that we need to probably shelve for now? Yeah, I, th I think we'd we'd all reached the point. I think you know we'd been on the road in America for for a couple of years, and you know we were all wanting to. We'd all bought um, probably you know four track. Porter Studios, and we all want to take, you know, start, you know, loop breaking out of our positions, as it were, in the band, you know, and, and do our own thing. And I think it would just, you know, we just sort of thought, well, we want, we want to do our own thing now, you know. And that was mm. the first, you know, the first step in, in you know, everybody doing, you know, growing up and moving away from each other, you know, because five, five or six years, I think, we'd, we'd been together, and you know, and, that, and that's that's pretty, that's a, a long apprenticeship, you know. And that's what it was, you know. It really, it really was. It was just like, it's hit the ground running, and then, but, you know, you want to start breaking out and doing, expressing yourself, your own terms, you know. After a while, there wasn't a stage for you where you were worried about the future. You just were embracing the fact that you could now be free to do to, to pursue your own sound. Yeah, I mean, we weren't particularly worried about the future because we didn't really have a plan in, in that sense, you know. Yeah. But we're all still pretty young and no you know, family or commitments as such. So, you know, there wasn't really any big uh, financial dimension to us making that decision. We just wanted to keep, you know, keep things exciting and, you know, do or start making our own music. And so what came next? Was it, I'm trying to figure out whether you would have reconnected with Joe from BMX Bandits at this point. Yeah, I I mean, I don't, I don't, we don't really, um, you know, we'd always been friends throughout this whole point. You know, uh, I think uh, Joe and I were out one night in Glasgow at the art school or somewhere, and 
and Joe just um, said, well, do you fancy now that you've, you know, you've left the, the Super Dragons, do you fancy joining up with me and the Superstar you know, and, and moving things forward and that? So I thought, yeah, no problem. I'm, I'm quite happy to do that. So that's what we did. What's your memories of Superstar? They were, for me, a great and fantastic band and I still rate their music very highly. And, oh, yeah. Uh, uh, but a different approach, I'm guessing, as well to, to what you've been doing and a different sound. Absolutely, yeah. <clears throat> I think we, we were... I mean, I was closely involved in working with Joe, you know, all through the like the groovy little numbers and the first um, the creation superstar stuff. So I was involved in all that, and so I was always aware of of, of what it was doing and how how it was all developing. Um, yeah, and I was just, I just, I mean, Joe and I had been uh, best friends since high school, and we kind of knew each other, at, you know, inside out, back to front, you know. So we, we had pretty pretty good idea of what. Joe was wanting to do so yeah it was just the trying to bring it to a you know that kind of beautiful power pop west coast harmony thing and try and bring it up to date and you know just with the, the three-part harmonies and you know and just really really melodic pop music you know and it's and it and it's hard it's hard for that kind of thing to break through when you're you know it's just on the tail end of the grunge you know everything's kind of doom and gloom and then these ray of sunshine trying to pop out over the horizon you know and it's but it was out of time but it still sounds timeless to me you know and it's it's some beautiful songs recorded yeah well i was talking to uh to joe about uh, the rod stewart cover and even i could completely get on board with that i mean we were talking about how how that must have felt for him and and you know what it was like to hear it and i know i i think it's a great version <laughs> yeah it's bizarre uh, we, as soon as it, the, when the tape arrived with us um, we were sitting on a, a tour bus and didn't really want to put it on and listen to it you know but it did eventually so then we couldn't stop listening to it you know because it it, it also added like a middle eight to it yeah and i was just like what is this you know but but it, it exists and it's in its own wee world and you know and you have to take it as a compliment, you know. Oh, of all the songs, he was he must have been presented with hundreds of songs, and he, he chose that one. So yeah, you know, fair fair play to the man. You know. So with Green Green Peppers and Snow Goose, those two projects, and um, and tell me a bit about Snow Goose and how you kind of uh, formed that band. And you you weren't uh, the singer in that band, but you did provide sort of backing vocals and stuff. Yeah, well, that's kind of that kind of grew out of the last. Green Peppers album. There was a, a trio of Green Peppers albums, and the third one um, I wanted to use like female singers, and I had a, a few great singers lined up. But then um, my friend Dave Dave McGowan he said, "Well, I've I've got a friend who's a singer. She's not really got any kind of profile as such. You know, she she hasn't really sang outside the house as far as he's aware, and um, but she's got a great voice. You know, so." I said, well, just send me over a, a demo or a, just a recording and let me, you know, let, let me hear Anna sing. And it was a version of Only Love Can Break Your Heart, Neil Young's song. And it was just her singing it, um, you know, with no backing. And it was just like a voice from the gods, you know. And I was like, this is unbelievable. And, and she came down to the studio and she sang the songs for me and the Green Peppers album. And from then I thought to myself, well, that I wanted to write a record for this with this voice for Anna to sing. And so I hooked up with Dave McGowan and Anna and we kind of worked our way and 
you know, around a few live shows just as a trio. Dave was playing double bass, Nana was singing, I was playing acoustic. And it was quite a rootsy uh, thing, a folky thing. And then I just kind of wrote an album of songs for her to sing. And it was just because she's got that kind of natural English folk voice. Um, it wasn't difficult for me as a as, as a songwriter and as a you know as a music lover to get in, to hook myself into that world because I'd always been a big huge fan of like the birds and you know, folk rock in general and mm. acoustic mm. music so all these different things that were all bubbling away in my, my background it all sort of kind of came together with you know Anna singing on top of it and it was like it became like the most natural thing in the world and it and it just it kind of just blossomed from there. And do you think, Jim, then that, that that when things start to get back to normal, you'll start to pursue like doing gigs or and and sort of promoting the albums that you've done so far in in a live setting? I would like to think so. Yeah, I mean, we've done a couple of shows, um, a handful of shows, really, as Snow Goose. Um, but when we have played, the reaction has been um, outstanding. You know, people just feed off the the band. I mean. And Anna's voice. And we've played a, I mean, the beauty of it is we can play as a, a duo, you know, just a, a very stripped down guitar and, and vocals. But we can also play as a full electric band, you know, if we mm. pull in a few favours, get these great musicians to play with us. Um, <clears throat> and it sounds like, it sounds, sounds phenomenal. So, yeah, we, I mean, as soon as we can all get together and we, and Anna added complication lives in England, I live in Scotland, which doesn't help either. But, you know, when we want something to work, we'll, we make it work. And, you know, we've got a new album currently in the process of being recorded. It's written and all the backing tracks are done. So we're just waiting to finish that. And from then, hopefully, fingers crossed, we can get out and play some more live shows. Oh, well, I look forward to hearing it, Jim. As I say, the, the, the music that you're making is is great and i just say it's really connected with me in terms of the uh, the sound and and it's something that i i really love to listen to anyway and i hadn't you know prior to this podcast it's been an eye-opener because obviously i'm reconnecting with bands i was listening to in the 90s but then you forget uh-huh. actually that people are doing amazing and fantastic uh, work now and that's what's what's been really great about doing it and reconnecting yeah. with people well i i i'll let you go and uh, i say thanks ever so much jim for joining me and talking about almost like a potted history of yourself you could pretty <laughs> well, much do a you. you could pretty much do a podcast series on your on your on your own <laughs> yeah yeah I've, I've, i have yet to cross that bridge but yeah i, I certainly could <laughs> take care right. bye-bye you too bye-bye a big thank you to jim for joining me on the podcast it was an absolute pleasure to speak to him about all his musical projects to date i've put links to all jim's projects in the show notes for the episode and you really must check out some of the stuff he's been doing recently it's absolutely sublime Okay, so this is the part of the podcast where I talk about all the ways in which you can support it. And uh, those of you who listen every week will know this is kind of like some sort of weird pleading ritual that I do. But I will soldier on. So there's three things you can do, really. Uh, if you haven't done already, please go to social media and give me a follow. Interact with me there. Let me know you're listening. It's really nice to hear from you. So just search for Back to Britpop on Instagram, Twitter and Facebook. The other way you can support me is by buying me a virtual coffee. It's a small financial donation, essentially, and it'll just help me run this podcast because I do everything on my own without support from a network or advertising. If you want to advertise on the podcast, hit me up, by the way. The last thing you can do, which really helps, is write reviews and 
leave ratings uh, on the devices that you're listening to the podcast on. So Apple is a really good one and also Google, Podbean, Spotify. I think on all those platforms, you can leave a star rating. If you could do that, that's fantastic. Also, writing little reviews as well really helps. And I'd love to get that feedback from you. That's it for this episode. Hopefully, I'll be back next week with another one. In the meantime, take care.